The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. Back in the 1980s, if you were LGBTQ in Kansas City, there were few safe places where you could show your love and feel like you could just be yourself in public. It could be pretty lonely, isolating. And there was this ongoing constant fear of being harassed. But there were important community gathering spots, like the bars, Billy Jean's, Birds of a Feather, Tootsie's, the Cabaret, and LGBTQ bookstores like Phoenix Books on 39th and Main, where people could come together to exchange ideas and underground literature. And if you spent any time in any of these spots back in the early 90s, you might have stumbled across a small brochure promising a different type of community gathering spot altogether. On the front was a drawing of a beautiful old three-story house, and underneath, a subtle message to walk hand-in-hand, openly. Below that, the word Womantown, written in large letters, spelled W-O-M-O-N, to eliminate any reference to men. I'm Suzanne Hogan, and this is A People's History of Kansas City, a podcast from KCUR Studios. And today, on International Women's Day, we have a bonus episode for you about how some Kansas City lesbians founded a radical, women-led, women-owned community for queer women-identifying people. Affordable rent was a big draw, but Womantown provided more than just a place to live. It was a social outlet a safety network, and a self-sufficient community where women didn't have to rely on men for anything. We really just wanted to live in a neighborhood where we were accepted. What if we created a vision, and the vision turned into what we know today and what we saw develop over the years, Womantown. At its height, Womantown had 80 residents and covered a 12-block radius. While its heyday was from 1990 to 1995, the effects of Womantown are still felt in the Longfellow neighborhood in Midtown Kansas City. To find out more, we're going to go to Womantown. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's going to be bumping. You got to be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org radioactive. To help us get to Womantown, I need to introduce you to Sandy Woodson. I always say I feel like we've been running parallel lives, the LGBT community and everybody else. There are so many stories and so much history. And where I'm at right now is I want to gather this before people die or before people retire and move off somewhere where I can't get at them. She's the producer of a new Kansas City PBS documentary about Womantown. People worked really hard put a lot into these efforts, and nobody knows about them. 
Sandy first heard about Womantown a few years ago and then became so passionate about the story that she made it her mission to find and interview as many members of the short-lived community as she could, which was not easy because some of them have moved away quite a distance. I understand you kind of went through some pretty great lengths to gather some interviews. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it was one of those things where when COVID hit, I was like, you know, I could work from anywhere. So I bought an old camper and started traveling. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go meet these women in Georgia. So I went there and interviewed them and digitized all their photographs and anything I could get. Then I went to Florida. Among many other things, the women told Sandy that Womantown was inspired by underground music festivals in the 1980s. They said when we went there, we saw what it was like if women were in charge of everything. You got that feeling for three or four days of what it would be like for women to create their own community, their own festival, to be in charge of everything, like the music festivals. They were the musicians. They built the stages. They did the crews. Women were empowered. There were no men there at all. So I think that was what really inspired them to go look. We attended a lecture by a woman by the name of Sonia Johnson, and uh, she was talking about forming conscious women's community basically to get away from patriarchy. I mean, I can remember growing up hearing stuff like, you don't want to go to work with nothing but women because they'll, you know, be backbiting each other and they'll be fighting all the time. That's the stuff I heard growing up that now, of course, I'm like, okay, that's some man saying that because they don't want women to band together because if we do, we can do anything we want to. We had no problem with men. We just didn't want them running our lives, (laughs) you know. And when these women would go to these festivals and they would be like, this is how I would like to live every day of my life. I don't have to worry that I'm a lesbian. I don't have to worry about all of these things that they worry about on a daily basis. And that's why I think it was so awesome for Marianne Andrea to go, this can happen, this has happened. It is, it is happening in other places. Can you set up for me who Drea and Marianne were for like people who don't know. The way I explain it is that Marianne and Drea were the founders, Andrea Nadelsky with Marianne Hopper. And Drea had just, she bought this house for like $500, the one she was living in. So this is the house bought in the 70s. I was a radical out dyke and I was determined to quit paying rent. And And she said when she first bought it, it had no windows, no heating, no electricity, nothing. But she had always done work as a handy dyke and managed apartment buildings for other people. So she was like, I think I can do this. I was, you know, brave, I thought, you know, and naive. Then I got with my partner, Marianne Hopper. Marianne met Drea. She came over to Drea's house, and she's like, there's no way I can live here. This is scary. There's gunshots. So I really broke down. It was like, I don't think I can live here, you know, unless we really make some changes. So then we just started imagining, what if we could just walk hand in hand, freely, down the streets, a bunch of lesbians all in this neighborhood? She wanted to have a place where she could be out and have support of other women. And I thought, well, if we can do the work, I could imagine that it would maybe be fun to live here. 
so that's when we really started saying, well, let's see if we can get people to move here. Andrea, she wanted for all of these people that she felt like didn't have a chance in hell of buying a house to be able to have that opportunity. Because to her, a house was safety and security. You can invite in who you want to, you can do what you want to in that house and nobody can tell you differently. Tell me about the history of the neighborhood where Womantown ended up. Yeah, Longfellow and Dutch Hill. So what Drea has told me is that in the early days with this neighborhood, it was a pretty fancy area, and people that had money lived there. And at some point, the, the white flight happened, and a lot of people left. So that neighborhood had come onto some hard times economically, but in some ways that opened an opportunity or set things up for Drea and Marianne to come in and see an opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about that tension there? So when the women started coming, one of the stories that Drea tells me is that there were two women who only lived like a block and a half apart, and they hadn't seen each other in 20 years because they were too afraid to get out of their house and meet each other. And she said, finally, once the lesbians were there and they started to feel a little safer, Drea and Marianne got those two women together. So she said that made her feel really good to have done that. Was there like a geographic boundary of Womantown? Yeah. um, Theoretically, it was 31st Street to like 25th Street and Harrison to uh, Cherry. It's interesting. In the documentary, it mentions this, and I, I thought about it too, how unique it was to have an intentional community like this in a city. Yeah, that's one of the things I learned. So the only option at that time that most women knew about were these rural lesbian communities where women would band together by 40 acres out in the woods somewhere and then start building a community. We definitely saw a reason to have it in a city because there was jobs available, homes already built. I'm not a rural person, walking with the chickens and the ducks. I am a city gal. I want the theaters and the activities. Let's go back to kind of like that momentum building time when people were starting to come. I mean, how many people were coming? Where were they coming from? The first ad was in 1991 put in the Lesbian Connection. It was a newsletter. It's 50 years old now. I think you'd be shocked how many people received the Lesbian Connection throughout the United States when it was at its height. It was probably like in the tens of thousands. And I think that probably got more women because at that time, there was no internet. If you wanted to find out anything about being a lesbian, that's where you would go. When I moved in in 93, a lot of lesbians were moving in, moving in from different parts of Kansas City, too, and different parts of Missouri. Cindy lived there until 2017. Just the idea of being with a group of women, just having all that female energy. It was, it was just very life-affirming. Marianne says it was really exciting when they were getting phone calls and letters. This is the other part of this that made it so time-consuming. There's a photo in the documentary of these stacks of letters, and these letters were things like, hi, I'm interested, what jobs are available? What is Kansas City like? What kind of houses are available? So it wasn't just like, hey, I want to find out more about it. You know, they had very particular questions. Mm-hmm. 
So they started creating these packets that they could send out to women. They knew every house that was for sale, how much it was going for. They knew uh, to send out information about demographics and economics of the city itself. Like how many people came in from how wide ranging of a geographic region are we saying? Well, they had uh, women from Hawaii. From New York, from California. Wisconsin. From the South. They say at its height, there were 80 lesbians living in that area. The fact that so many of these women just heard about it, came and visited one time, and then bought a house, I mean, it had to have been pretty impressive. We had a song called The Dykes Can Marching Two by Two, and then there was four of you, and before you knew, we all knew each other. I'm wondering how much of the creation of Womantown was a call out to address systems of patriarchy from the get-go, or was it more just, we, we're lesbians and we want a place where we can feel comfortable? I think, it, um, I think it had to be less about the patriarchy because they weren't putting themselves out of patriarchy completely. You know, it was more of, we want to be here we want to have other women here with us so we can all take care of each other. Were there any kids? There were kids. And you know what? This is a topic I'd love to touch on, separatism. So I never heard of separatism before I started doing this. And um, I had heard that there, they, people were saying that these lesbians didn't want any male children in the neighborhood, didn't want any men in the neighborhood. And the rumor went around, you know, that we were separatists. We were separatists. Barbara Lee came in, and she was an early organizer. And to me, uh, I never found, I never thought that word was so bad until I started hearing it from these gay men who said we were separatists in the neighborhood. Like, so what? <laughs> we got this little tiny piece of the world, and we don't like to be around men too much. Sarah had two children, and one of them was male. She goes, he never felt like he was out of place. And um, there were gay men. There were straight men. I mean, this, they, didn't, they weren't able to put a bubble over this neighborhood and make it all lesbians. They were coexisting, co-living with all different types of people. And they weren't trying to kick any of those people out. What Drea says is she said, you know, I wasn't trying to discourage the gay men. I just wasn't promoting to the gay men because to promote them was to put us aside. And she also brought up the fact that, you know, gay men coming into this neighborhood have a different sense of security. They're not having to be as in, much in fear as the women are. I thought that was an interesting point as well. So there were men allies living there, too, and also just men. Absolutely. The ones who were allies, the people, the lesbians, the gay men, the trans, those that were supportive of us, they're all in. Those who were not, they were vicious. As hard as we would try to build community, we always had that, you know, element. She was telling me at one point when they were trying to get loans and nobody would give them loans, she invited a bunch of bankers into her house. And she goes, I'm sitting in the living room with like these five men and they're like, well, what can we do? And she goes, well, you can loan us some dang money. You know, we're trying to buy houses here and we don't have, not everybody's independently wealthy. 
you know, they were smart. They reached out to the landlords of all the apartment buildings, and they said, if you improve the standard of your apartment building, I can guarantee you I'm going to have women coming in here and paying you on time the money that they owe you. Just things like that. You know, they were very good about community building. How did Womantown actually come to be accepted by the wider community? I imagine it was a process. I don't think it ever was, honestly. I think it was hidden enough that people didn't really know it was there. Or what about by, just by their own neighbors? I, I think it was a struggle. Some of the residents who had been there long term that had families, they had this misconception that we would turn their children to be, you know, lesbians or gay. It's like, no. We don't want to have really anything to do with your kids, you know, necessarily. We like your kids. They're fine. But we don't we don't have any intention to turn them into anything. Straight people sometimes have a hard time figuring out how to behave <laughs> when they're completely surrounded by lesbians. Even if they had the women around them that they enjoyed being around, there was still all these other people. And at that time, things were rough for lesbians and women. So... I don't think it ever got better, honestly. I think if it got significantly better, they might have stayed. What do we know about the range of people they were? Like, what kind of jobs did they do or interests? A lot of them, what Drea said, one of the reasons why she also wanted to help the lesbians, she goes, we didn't make any money. She said they were in social work or they were teachers, and they weren't paid very much. And did one of them work for the city? Drea took a job. This was part of the the smart things that I think that they did for sure was Drea got a job with the city. And because of that, she found out about the free paint programs for houses. She found out about streetlights and sidewalks and all of these grants that they had for these older neighborhoods so that they could use all of that. So a lot of the women who were moving into these houses maybe didn't have experience doing some of the work to keep them up. How much of a community effort was that? A lot of community effort. I think in most cases, any time a woman moved into a house, it probably needed work. You know, they're doing all kinds of stuff. They're, they're basically gutting these places and starting them over. But the idea with the shirtwaist houses, the idea was you fix up the bottom floor and rent it out, and then you live on the second floor. And then Drea said her ultimate idea would be that always have younger people on the lower floor so that they could help take care of her as she got older. And not only that, when these women would come in from out of town, they would put them up in their homes. That's why a lot of them started buying apartment complexes so that if women came from other parts of the country, they could stay there and and make up their mind as to whether they wanted to buy a house. When you were talking to any of these women, did you talk about gentrification or that how that maybe affected that neighborhood in good and bad ways? Well, a couple of things. One of the things Drea said is she felt like there were people who were trying to blight that neighborhood so that developers could come in and, you know, build new houses and charge high rates. And they wanted to stop that, obviously. These women weren't coming in, fixing up the houses so they could sell them for a lot more money. They were fixing them up so they could stay there and have a community. So I think that might be the difference for something like that. Yeah. What about racial diversity and how much was that a part of the conversation, do you think, when they were putting the word out about Womantown and trying to get more people to be a part of this community? 
They were very big on diversity. And one of the first women who bought a house there was Bev Powell, who's African-American. And, you know, Sue and Bev both, they were like, you know what, we've been discriminated against. We're not discriminating against anybody. You know, we don't care who's moving in here. We would just like to have a lot of lesbians. At one time, I think they were saying that the percentages was that 40 percent of the women they had brought in were people of different ethnicities. So, Well, of course, they had a, a meeting first where they gave the information. And of course, lesbians, it was a potluck. <laughs> what is the deal with lesbians and potlucks? I think women are just so practical. It's like, hey, we all bring one thing and then you've got this giant party with all different kinds of food. We always hosted the best parties, Bev and I, the potlucks, because <laughs> Bev was an incredible cook. Martha and Sarah, they'd bring their instruments, and we had street festivals. The get-togethers, that's, to me, was the fun part. Going out to Lewisburg Cider Mill together, looking for pumpkins, sitting around a big picnic table, eating apple cider donuts, and just laughing and having a good time. You know, they have pictures of all the yard parties that they did, and they would do street fairs and things like that. It was just fun collecting photos from everyone. At one point or another, I called everybody and I was like, I need photos of you. I need photos of you doing something in the 90s. I loved that because it was so from their experience and how they saw themselves and their community. Can you tell me about that symbol that ended up being created to represent this neighborhood or this, this know, community? Yeah, that's something specific. They created these flags with the tulip symbol. I think early on they were trying to think of kind of like iconic images for them and things to identify themselves. And uh, they made these flags and they put them in the doorways so that they themselves, when they're walking through the neighborhood, they would know where the lesbians were. Because at one time there were 75 to 80 lesbians there. And they probably knew every one of them. But this was a way of other women being able to walk through the neighborhood and go, oh, okay, that's that's a safe house. The only way you got a flag was we had to give it to you when you moved in. So I'd say, hang it so we can recognize where you're living all over this 12-block radius. I know a reporter who wrote about Woman Town back in the 90s. And this didn't make it in the article, I don't think, but they told me that uh, – there was a fleet of retired postal trucks. That visual is really cool to me. Can you talk about that? That was part of their security system. They would park those in front of people's houses so that people wouldn't know whether somebody was home or not. That was the idea behind that. So, like, if somebody wasn't home and you park that vehicle in front of that house, somebody might think that there's somebody home and not break into the house. So, I mean... And kind of alluded to this. I mean, obviously, it didn't last that long, so it had its problems. Do you know what some of those were or what caused it to fizzle out? It was very time-consuming for them. And I think that's part of the momentum kind of was like, hey, this is awesome. So many people are moving here. But the other side is, oh, God, now there's more people we have to <laughs> talk to and get organized. Promoting Womantown, going to different festivals to talk about it, keeping up with all the paperwork involved, and uh, really it was a full-time second job. And so every weekend was pretty much dedicated in between mom and dad, Andrea's grandmother who was also ill in Illinois. They did so much organizationally in those first few years that it was too much. 
They had hoped a lot of the women coming to the community would be interested in helping keeping it going. As the organized effort, they found out that wasn't the case. So at one point, they just kind of got exhausted and left. And really, we kept all the property here. So it was like, we need a break from this, from the constant every day. A lot of people are here now. They can keep it rolling. I mean, there are over 80 or a, a lot of women were here during that period of time. How is Womantown memorializing Kansas City history and queer histories of Kansas City? I don't think anybody knows about it, honestly. I mean, um, how should it be remembered? I mean, to me, the the coolest part about it is that a group of women decided they were going to do something and they did it. And they did it with the support of each other. And they really didn't need any outside help to do it, you know? I mean... They took some when it was offered to them, but they weren't they weren't like, oh, we can't do this because we don't have the money or we can't do this because, you know, nobody will let us do it or whatever. You know, they just decided we're going to do this and they did it. And it was a struggle. I guess that's the part I identify with is the times that you feel like you're, you know, pushing that rock up the hill all every step of the way. Are any of the residents still living in Womantown? Yeah. So Sue Moreno lives on the edge and owns some properties still. Um, Mickey still lives there. Cindy lived there until 2017. Phyllis moved out around the same time. Cindy and Phyllis were living in the same apartment building, the one that Marianne Andrea bought uh, a long time ago. This is my favorite question to ask. Is there anything I didn't ask about that you wish I had asked you about? Or anything you want to ask me about? Well, let me ask you, in, in watching the documentary, what surprised you about it? Hmm. What surprised me? I love that it was a string together of women's voices that it wasn't narrated. I thought that was really nice. I was surprised it was as short-lived as it was. I think maybe I thought because it feels so radical and amazing and then when you think five years, but then when you're actually, when I look back on some things I've been involved with, similar community efforts or, you know, different things, five years can be a long time. Uh, <laughs> so maybe that was the biggest surprise that it had to end. I mean, it, did it feel like an ending? I guess that's one question. Like, did something happen? It's like, well, it's over. Or did it just kind of fizzle out? I think, you know, what you see in Barbara Lee's folder is she sends out kind of an appeal in one of the last newsletters and says, hey, people, I need some help with this. Is there anybody who wants to take this on? And nobody did. So I kept trying to keep things going. Other people were involved too, not just me, except the, the work of the community wasn't getting done by anybody much but me. Probably the end of 94 or so, um, I just felt like I was driving the bus and got real quiet. And suddenly I turned around and there was nobody on the bus. I think for some people who moved there and weren't really part of the community efforts, it probably didn't feel like anything had changed. You know, they were just living their lives and they were staying in this place where there were other women and that all continued on. And the properties have continued to improve. And, uh, you know, so in some ways it didn't stop. 
At the end of the documentary, there's this really beautiful scene from the present day where a lot of former Womantown residents are hanging out and laughing around a table, and they seem to be really comfortable around one another. I'm wondering, is everyone still friends, and do they see each other that often? A couple of them see each other all the time and always have, but for a lot of them, that was the first time they'd seen each other in, you know, 20 years or something. So, yeah, we wanted to do a potluck since they talked about potlucks all the time. So we did a potluck at Martha's house and got everybody from the show in there. Well, they start breaking out into song. What's the story behind this song? Yeah, well, they start talking about the women who are no longer alive. And Jeannie Jean Green and Bev Powell. Literally, I missed Bev by weeks. I mean, I met Sue. I was supposed to meet Bev. Next thing we know, she died of COVID. And then Drea said, you know, she was talking about how, you know, these are women that really impacted our lives. You know, Martha, do you have a song we could sing? And that's when Martha came up with that song. Yeah, I loved it. Like a ship in the harbor, like a mother and child, like a light in the darkness, I'll hold you a Sandy Woodson's documentary, Woman Town, will premiere on Kansas City PBS March 17th. There's also an event at the Kansas City Museum on March 10th, featuring a panel of former Womantown residents. A People's History of Kansas City is a production of KCUR Studios with the support of the Mid-Continent Public Library. This episode was produced by Mackenzie Martin and Hannah Bailey, mixed by Mackenzie Martin with editing by Barb Shelley. Krista Henthorne does all of our artwork and music this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this episode to Sandy Woodson and Emily Woodring and Kansas City PBS for all of the incredible interviews used in this episode. You heard the voices of Womantown residents Martha Hale, Mary Ann Hopper, Barbara Lee, Sarah Marquis, Sue Moreno, Cindy Moses, and Andrea Nadelsky. Also, a big thank you to the Gay and Lesbian Archive of Mid-America for supplying us with a ton of great archival material from their collection. And Stuart Hines, who is the head of that collection and first told me about Womantown years ago. For more KC history content, you can find us on Twitter, PHKCPod. And if you like this story, check out our episode all about Sarah Lloyd Green, a badass woman who organized a waitress union in the early 1900s and basically made it her life's mission to stick it to the man. She kind of shot straight from the hip and, and didn't hold back. Stay tuned to the feed. We have a lot in store for you this year. And thanks to everyone who has rated this podcast in Apple Podcasts, shared it with a friend, or donated on behalf of People's History at kcur.org support. We really appreciate you. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Thanks for listening and take care.